Today we are con continuing our work in the Gospel of John uh, as we've been learning and studying uh, together. You know, one of the things about uh, studying a gospel like this and looking at it week after week is that as we walk together in this year of John, we get, we get all kinds of different kinds of scripture and truth there. We, uh, we've been looking, we looked at originally at that introduction that was so powerful in the first chapter. Uh, we've been able to look at things like John 3.16, and then we've been amazingly uh, moved by the stories uh, the story is turning the water into wine, uh, the time with Nicodemus and being uh, the idea of being born again, the woman at the well in chapter four, the nobleman's son, the royal official, uh, as Jesus healed him from a distance. Um, we've seen how uh, Christ has moved so powerfully. But as you get into um, this section of scripture, there are places in scripture that you might kind of like skip over, or maybe you didn't re really remember so much about a section of scripture, but it's so important that we hear not only like the great stories and miracles that Jesus does, but to hear what Jesus has to say about himself. It, it reminds us of, of who we are theologically. How do we, how do we get to this place that we believe like what we just did is a celebration of the almighty God who has given himself for us uh, and demonstrating that and recognizing that happens through Jesus Christ. So uh, what we're looking at this morning gives us understanding as part of the bedrock of what we believe, who we are. We ask, we ask questions all, a lot of times people will ask, well, what, um, what is who is Jesus? Is Jesus really God? Uh, it's a question that shows up occasionally, and uh, the understanding is, is phenomenal. It's hard for people today to accept that Jesus is really and truly God, but it was even harder in that day when, it was, when it, this was happening. Um, these, these Jewish leaders and these people um, are moved with with a sense of uncertainty. Uh, we just saw in chapter 18 that because Jesus wasn't doing everything that they said should be happening related to the Sabbath, that uh, they were ready to kill him. Uh, they were really ready to uh, come against him. It reminds us that, you know, we can see here that their trust in their beliefs, their legalism. Uh, so as hard as it was, for people to accept Jesus as God, um, today we are still called to that. You know, back then they had this monotheistic belief throughout their culture. That means they believed in one God. And so for Jesus to say that he was God was just overwhelming to them. Well, today, you know, a lot of people could care less about that, right? We don't live in really a monotheistic society. We live in a pluralistic society. People believe all kinds of different things about God and even relative, um, meaning that as long as you don't bug them with, their, with your faith, you can believe anything you want to, right? So not only do people not believe that Jesus is God, they don't really care uh, if he's God or not. And so that's why this, this response uh, that we see from Jesus is so profound uh, for us. Uh, so we see that when Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda, 
in Jerusalem, and he chose to heal this man that had a superstitious, uh, he was an invalid, he was disabled, and he knew that it was going to attract all kind of attention of the religious authorities. And sure enough, it did. Uh, they scold this man that's been healed for carrying his pallet that he's been laying on at this pool waiting for, a here, uh, waiting for healing and a miracle. And they begin to hunt down, the religious leaders hunt down Jesus. And they denounce him for violating their rules. And their real purpose was to eliminate Jesus as a threat. Jesus didn't focus, though, just on that surface issue. He went straight to the issue. The issue wasn't just about the Sabbath. The issue was, who is he? Is he God? And Jesus radically uh, proclaims uh, what, what has taken place. And so in this scripture, he's, he's responding to that. He's responding to uh, who is he? And he offers us six specific claims that he makes to who Jesus really is. Now, as we walk through these, I just want to ask you, do, do you believe these things? Do you believe in your heart? Not just in a religious way or I come to church, but do you believe these things that Christ has to say about himself. Oh, it's radical. <laughs> I wanted to call this sermon radical. It's radical what he has to say. It's amazing. It's life-changing. But what it really means is if he is so radical about recognizing who he is, what kind of response would it take from us? I would say a radical response uh, to him. When we see who he is, it's overwhelming to us. So I hope that you'll kind of draw your attention maybe away from this relativistic, pluralistic society that we live in and really hear what Jesus Christ says is absolutely true about himself. That changes everything. So these claims that he offers to us, I have uh, six of them for you. So basically the way this whole scripture is laid out is there are six claims and then there are some witnesses that he brings along as we get uh, to the end of this section. So as we're looking at it today, we're recognizing uh, this work that he accomplished in us. It's John chapter, nine, chapter 5, verse 19 through 47. Uh, so that's what we're looking at together. Now, this first claim that he makes in verses 19 and 20 is that Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is equal with God. So they ask him questions. They're trying to trap him. They're kind of having a trial on the street. And Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So when Jesus is talking, Jesus is talking about the father and him connected, working together, drawn together in love. Notice like in the, the Lord's Prayer, we say all the time, he says, pray this way, our Father. Well, in this section, he doesn't use the phrase our Father. He connects himself. He says, my Father. I and the Father 
are, are one. He says it multiple places uh, throughout the Gospel of John. So these religious leaders recognized that Jesus was calling his own father, making himself equal with God. And so this, this speech, this, this message that he offers to them, there leaves no mistake about it, uh, what he is trying to say to them. Jesus begins uh, a couple of these different points by saying kind of a double amen. He says, verily, verily, I say to you, or truthfully, I'm saying to you, it's like a, it's kind of like a double, ma a double amen. It is true. It is true. He says, this is what I want you to know. And he claims equality with God, calling himself the son of God and referring to God as his father. And while father and son are distinct persons, father and son are equal and united together. So as that father and the son, they act together, not in opposition to each other, but in total unity. There is not only one mind and one heart together, but one, one heart joined together to accomplish what God has in mind. The Son is the perfect revelation of the Father coming to walk on earth with us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the one who once was in heaven came and walked among us on the earth? Jesus says he and the Father are one, that Jesus is equal with God. I'm telling you, that's the least relative thing you can say in your life. That when you say that, you are recognizing that Jesus has been exalted. He is not just a great teacher. He's not just some religious figure that we named Christianity about. He is our God. He is equal with the Father, and he has come to walk among us. Do you believe something that radical? And how do you respond to that? Secondly, uh, the second thing we see, the second claim, is that Jesus is the giver of life. Verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. If you jump down to verse 26, he says, for as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the son to also have life in himself. Um, you know, in order to give life, you have to be the source of life, right? The world, um, I mean, it would, it's just an outrageous claim for us to believe, for any human being to say that they are the giver of life. You know, doctors can give medicine uh, to help us uh, kind of delay death and to help us to find some healing uh, in this life. Um, the prophets in the Old Testament, you know, there are uh, miracles that took place there, but not one of them took credit for it themselves. Uh, they gave all that praise to God, the divine power to be able to raise somebody from the dead. Christ is the one who gives life uh, to all of us, recognizing that only God can create something out of nothing, and only God can give life. We see it over and over in the Bible. One place we see is the valley of dry bones, those bones that were laid out there. And who gave life? Well, it wasn't the prophet. The Spirit of God breathed on those bones and gave them life. He is the life giver. See what that means, why it's so radical is that not only does God raise the dead in a physical way, see you need physical life. I mean you all got it. You sludged through the snow and came in here and you're 
face was wet and uh, you were, you, you have physical life. And we pray often for God to touch us physically. You might not have felt very good this morning. And maybe you were praying, Lord, just help me make it through and not have any problems today. You know, whatever you're, you're praying about. There are people in a hospital or a nursing home that are praying today. We're praying for many that are hurting and struggling today. What do we, what do we say? We're praying for them physically. But what's so radical is that you not only have physical life, but you have spiritual life. You have a spirit in you. That God wants to give you life. Do you know that there are many people walking around physically that look like they're alive, but spiritually, the Bible says they're dead? You were probably like that. I remember when I was, uh, when I was younger and I would go to church and I was so in, I always had this heart for for church and for God. I mean, I've, I've kind of been like this my whole life. I mean, I just had such a hunger for it. I'd sit on the front row. None of y'all are here. So uh, I'd sit on the front row right there uh, at church every Sunday. And, uh, you know, I started taking notes like this stuff right here. I started doing that when I was like nine or 10 years old. I'm taking these. Notes. I was just so interested in all that. But what I began to realize was that even though I had interest in all those things, I was still outside of those things. I, I knew that I had, I had some awareness. God was touching me physically. He was helping me to grow. He was even touching my mind and helping me learn things. But I realized that he had not made me alive spiritually like I heard other people talking about. You know what I'm saying? You remember that? You remember that awareness that there was something going on in the life of some other people that you didn't have? That, you, that that wasn't going on in you, that you could say, oh, yeah, well, I'll go to church and everything's fine. But you begin to realize that there's a sense of life that is beyond my physical life, that there is something happening in me. Man, I've never been the same. And you know what? He keeps doing that over and over and over, that it's not just about salvation. It's about the life of the spirit that is alive in us. Man, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the giver, not only of physical life, but I'm the giver of spiritual life. You, you, I think the snow just made you cold. You did. <laughs> what, a, what a thing. What, a, what to think about that he is not only. So you, don't just pray for yourself physically that your finger will be better or that, you'll, that whatever's happening in your life, that you'll have this physical touch. But pray. That's why you came today, right? That's why you came, to, to eat spiritual food, to take it in so that you could be refreshed and restored and that today he could give you spiritual life. Jesus said, he was equal with God. He's the giver of life. Notice the third one. Thirdly, he says, Jesus, Jesus says that he is the final judge. The final judge, 22 and 23, says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He's talking about Jesus being the final judge. You know, if you ask people just generally, who is the final judge? I think most people would say God, right? You just say God. Well, this passage is so interesting. He's talking about them being equal. So they're equal in the, but Jesus is our final judge. He is the one that's going to make the final decision about us. You know, he is, he is recognizing that he is omniscient, that he knows all things. He knows us, and only he can 
weigh the value of a person without being hypocritical or overcoming us in some kind of negative way. He decides uh, the fate of humanity. He is the final uh, judge for all of us. So he reminds us that he's the judge. You know, when we, when we stand in the presence of the judge, uh, the judge was once a prisoner himself. He can be our judge because he's walked in our shoes. He knows where we are. He has been slanderously accused unjustly tried, brutally beaten, mocked at his execution, and absolutely killed on a cross. The Father honored him for his selfless sacrifice. He was truly innocent, dying without speaking a word of his own defense, that we should reverently and honor him. Paul says, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow, that's radical. God has said he is the final judge. And what does that mean? That means the fourth claim. That means that Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. Once again, in verse 24, he says, very truly I tell you, amen, amen. I'm telling you the truth, he says. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Jesus proclaims in this statement, he calls us to believe that he and the Father are one and that he will be the ultimate uh, judge uh, for all of us. He determines the, our destiny with God. Uh, it, it's good news. It is good news that the one that loves you more than all, he gets to be the one to make the final determination. Uh, he is the one. And when, when, you look at, when you look at this, you can see that uh, there's just some amazing truth here about him reminding us of our eternal destiny. How, what is your eternal destiny going to be on? Not your husband, not your spouse, they're not going to make the decision for you. You know, it's not going to be uh, just, just how good you did. I do a little bit better than, than others. Did I, you know, did I, did I do a little bit more good than, than not? Uh, some kind of weight or me no, your, your eternal destiny is wrapped up in what you believe radically about Jesus Christ. He's going to decide. Don't you love the thief on the cross? Uh, we've been practicing a lot, getting ready. Uh, I was standing right over there and watching this thief on the cross. And with amazement that Jesus, not only is crucified right beside him, but he makes an ultimate call. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You know, that he has the ability to say that to you. He's the, he's the one. He's the judge. He makes all the, uh, the, the final decisions about our faith in him. And so what you believe about him, not only the radicalness of what, you, what he says about himself, but your radical faith in him, that's going to make all the difference, and that's going to decide whether you go to heaven or not.
Jesus. Number, the, the fifth claim that he makes is, uh, he says that he will bring those and raise people from the dead. He will raise them from the dead. Again, he says, truly, truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Uh, He's telling us some things here. He is the one that is going to raise from uh, the dead. He's describing this for us, um, that he's going to raise up those from the dead. Don't you love the the words about hearing here? He says, um, reminding us that those who hear, even in the graves, they will hear. And if it's kind of a twofold thing about hearing, it's one thing to hear like what we're talking about today. And so we hear it. We hear it with our ears. We take it into our heart. We hear it. We understand it. But there's also the, the hearing that means that I'm living that out. You know, how can you tell if your kid really heard you? Right? It's not, were they standing in the room? Oh yeah, they heard me. No, no, no. The hearing is, oh, yeah, he heard me because he did what he was supposed to do. He responded to, to what he had heard. You, you, you get that, right? Just because we hear all these magnificent, radical things about Christ that he says about himself. The real question is, did you really hear it? Is it being lived out in your life? Don't be a rebellious son or daughter. Trust him. He is the one that wants you to hear that he raises the dead. I noticed some things here, uh, just some real truths that, again, that, that ask me, do I really believe? You know, there is definitely life after death, right? I mean, you read this scripture, you can't help it. If you believe that Jesus is telling the truth, you know that there is life after death. After you're in the grave, he says, the voices are going to be heard. Now, see, I have no idea how to figure out a verse like this. All I know is that the only one that knows for sure that has been here is Jesus. And he says, the people in the grave are going to hear. So I don't know if it's like that dry bones thing we were talking about or what it's going to be like. All I know is that once we get into the eternity, he's in full control. And he is going to raise us up. Uh, He is going to give us new bodies. And this whole thing is that everyone will be impacted by this. Everyone. You know, this is not like, well, if if you're a Christian, this is going to have some impact on you. I don't believe that. I believe that the whole world is going to be impacted by this kind of moment, this life after death moment uh, that God is, uh, how we're going to be impacted related to judgment and eternity. And then every person will fall into one of two categories, right? You got, you got two options, heaven or hell. Now, you, you, can, you can try to believe that the See, the culture loves to kind of mess up this whole thing. They want you to make, it, make light of and not really believe. But the truth is, the truth, if you believe who Jesus is and what Jesus has to say, he makes this radical claim that you only have two choices, trust in him and go to heaven or rebel against him and go to hell. 
That's pretty radical, isn't it? Especially the time that we live in now. Everybody wants it to be, you know, this way or that way or kind of soften it or change. But it's still so true that Jesus will raise the dead. You see what we got? Jesus is equal with God, giver of life. He's the final judge. Our eternal destiny is based on him and that Jesus will raise the dead. He's fully God, yet fully man, giving himself completely to us. So the last one, the last claim he makes is in verse 30. He says that Jesus always does uh, the will of God. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. You know, there's a little tone change right here. Earlier, he keeps talking about the son of God the son of man. He's using those statements to refer to himself. I love verse 30 because he says, I can do nothing. I judge as I hear my judgment. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. He's making no doubt about it. No absolute, no doubt at all what he is saying. He's asking you, do you believe these truths? Because I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about uh, who I am. So as, as you wonder, or as you may struggle with it, recognizing that Jesus is all of these things. So as you think about all the great people that have ever lived, all the great philosophers and teachers and statesmen and politicians, I mean, none of those, no great men or women who have ever lived would ever make claims like this because we'd say, you're insane. You're shameless. You're evil because none of them were God in the flesh. I wrote some notes at the end of this for you under verse 30 there. It says, Jesus declared these six truths about himself. Jesus claimed equality with God, which leaves us no room for compromise or middle ground. We get that, right? It's one, I mean, it's there or not. You believe or you don't. There is um, no middle ground. So we must choose to believe him or reject him. Own, those are the only options we have. If we choose to reject his claim, then we must choose between two alternative explanations. What I'm asking you to think about here is why, why would I reject him? What's the why of that? Because either Jesus knew that these claims he was making were false or he didn't. And if he deliberately misrepresented himself, you know what Jesus is? He's a total liar. He is evil to the core for demanding us to worship him when he's not really God. But on the other hand, if he's only a man who claims to be God, like many did in that time, then he's out of his mind, really. So if Jesus was wrong about his identity, then Jesus is nothing. Jesus was neither a good man or a teacher that was worth listening to. Nothing that he said would be trustworthy if he didn't know who he was, if we don't believe who he was. Yet, if we choose to believe his claims, then we have two choices, two responses, rebellion or trust. Accepting Jesus' claim to be God without trusting him for salvation makes us no better than the demons. You remember that? James tells us 
that even the demons believe in God and shudder, it says, shudder uh, with, with fear. They know that God is real. They know who Christ is, but yet they haven't applied that uh, to their life. Is that possible? Is it possible to trust in religious claims without receiving the offer of God's grace and receiving Christ as Savior? I'm asking you, is it possible? Is it possible to be religious without really receiving and knowing Christ as your Savior? Sure it is. We live, we live in it. Religion is our effort to gain heaven on our terms and by our own effort. The road to hell is jammed with people who proudly trust in their own goodness rather than humbly receiving the eternal life as a dear gift given to us by Jesus. It's so radical. The radical response demanded by the Lord is to accept his radical claims as true and to place our complete trust in him of all of our life choices that you and I make is the only right decision is to accept Christ. You know, I've, I pinned my whole life on that. Every, every person that we come into contact with, every person I have come into contact with, I have this desire that they would come to a place to accept Christ because I believe in my heart the things that Jesus has said about him. And if you believe what Jesus said, it has to burden you for those people in your life that don't know Christ, that haven't received him. Our radical response to him challenges us, moves us to recognize that he is uh, the answer. He is the one uh, that, we, that we trust in. Uh, our response demands that we put our faith completely in him because we believe. You know, Jesus is Lord. That, that verse from, from Paul said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We sing it. We sing, he is Lord, he is Lord. Help me out. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Now, this talks about you and me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. What is that song trying to do? That song is trying to say these claims that he made are absolutely true. You know, you know when he proved it? Easter morning. <laughs> he said, three days, I'm coming back. And all these things, you know, so if he hadn't done that, if he just died like all the rest of us, then it would have been nothing. But he rose from the grave. He rose up and basically proclaimed, all this stuff that I've been telling you is absolutely true. So if you're ready for Easter, then you ex your, your focus is to accept the claims of who, this, who Christ is uh, to us. Now, the last half of this is um, not only the claims that he made, those six claims, definitely worth your thinking and reading through those, but then he offers five witnesses. Uh, five witnesses to who Jesus is. So he, he starts out, it's kind of thinking about this um, like courtroom setting that we can see. There's a, uh, 
like a trial that's going on. And in the midst of this trial, uh, he's thinking about this court system and he's reminding us that uh, there needed to be witnesses. So if, if we can finish this sermon today thinking about uh, that we got a judge and we got a jury, and uh, let, let, we'll, we'll be in the jury, all right? We'll, be, we'll, we'll sit over in the side and we'll, we'll be the jury uh, and listen to what Jesus uh, has to say about the witnesses. I mean, Jesus is not being brought into court here except that it's like a public court, a public setting where he's being accused and there's a desire to kill him. And yet uh, they wanted, these Pharisees wanted the public opinion to turn against him. So Jesus in turn uh, offers some expression of witnesses that he could offer. First of all, uh, he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What he means by that, he's not talking about that he's not telling the truth. He's simply saying that in a court environment, that just because he said it didn't necessarily make it true. The Jews would say, you got to have at least some corroborating evidence. And so what's the corroborating evidence? He says, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. So he's going to give five witnesses. The first one is God the Father himself. When he uses that word another right there, he's not just talking about another that's alongside me. He's talk, he, he uses the phrase for another that is describing one who is just like himself. So he's, he's recognizing that the Father is the one that is offered uh, testimony about him and about his, uh, who he is, this claim that he is the son of God equal with the, with the father. Uh, the father has been responding to that. Uh, you remember when Jesus was born, the father sends the angelic host out and says, glory be to God, uh, and reminds them that just this savior has been born in Bethlehem. I mean, he was the GPS of the day, wasn't he? This is where it is. This is where I want you to go. And then when Jesus is baptized, you remember the father shows up and he says, this is my beloved son in who I am well. He's a witness. He's witnessing to us, proclaiming. We see him uh, proclaim that at the Mount of Transfiguration and through the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, seeing it that the, the father has sent him, and now the father is bearing witness that this is the Savior of the world, the Son of God. First witness was God the Father. Second witness was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was like this forerunner, one that had, that had come uh, to lead the way and to tell about the coming uh, of the Christ. Um, these Pharisees, they all, they all thought a lot of John the Baptist. He was one that was sent from God. They liked him right up to the moment where he said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the Messiah. He's the one. Uh, he's the one that has come and made such trans transformation uh, in their hearts and through his coming. So he's reminding he's, he's John the Baptist uh, was uh, his, his witness. Uh, number three, Recognize that the, uh, he says the witness of the, the works, the works that he had done. Uh, verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the father has given me to finish the very works that I am doing. We, we've been watching him. We've been seeing him by the pool and healing and raising, uh, working. We're going to see him walk on water. We're going to see him feed 5,000 plus. We're going to see him raise Lazarus from the dead. He says, the father who has sent me has testified concerning me, recognizing uh, that the one that has sent him 
that he is doing those very works and that the Father uh, testifies about him. We see uh, the great works uh, that Christ is accomplishing in us. Um, what a powerful witness uh, he is as we see the works of Jesus. God's gospel, gospel provides us overwhelming evidence about who is uh, the Christ. Number four, God the Father, John the Baptist, the works of Jesus. Uh, then he says, uh, the scriptures. The scriptures themselves uh, testify about me, about the coming of Christ. You see, uh, he says, um, you have in your mind your Bibles. This is the message constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest from the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you. And you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say that you want. He is reminding them that he is the one that scripture uh, proclaims about himself, reminding us of what, um, what the Bible is intended to do. You know, we don't worship the Bible. The Bible causes us to look for Jesus, to look for him. It's like um, I heard about this story about the, uh, started to say the Sears Tower, but the Willis Tower, you know, the one that has the wrong name now and all that over in Chicago. And you go up there. I don't know if you've ever been up there. Uh, you, you go up there, and it is, uh, it's quite shocking. I mean, to, to step out on this plexiglass and to see yourself standing over. Uh, I mean, I was, I've been there many times. Many times people don't want to do that. I want to go there. Uh, I love to do that. I love to step out there and, and then just kind of chastise those that are with me that don't want to do that. So uh, it's kind of fun. To, sorry about that. Um, so this guy, I wasn't there for this, but I heard about this. There's this guy, and, and uh, one of his friends is standing there on the plexiglass, just, just this beautiful scene there. And this guy uh, just says, this is amazing. I mean, the craftsmanship and the work of this is phenomenal. And he's down there, and he's looking at the frame right on the corner there. And he's kind of, he says, I think I'm going to scrape a little bit of this off and see exactly what this frame is, is made out of. That guy's ridiculous, right? He's so wrapped up in the frame that he forgot what the window was for. The window was to give you this magnificent, majestic view of this incredible city. And you stand there in awe of what you're, what you're seeing. See, that's how it is with the Bible. You can get wrapped up in, the, in loving the Bible and studying the Bible and forget that the intent of the Bible is to give you this incredible, amazing view of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the word of God. The scriptures bear witness to him over and over again. Come to Passion Play. You'll hear that proclaimed so clearly uh, as, as we celebrate that all throughout the Bible, Jesus is, is proclaimed. So never forget how the scriptures are a witness. And finally, he, he mentions he mentions Moses. Uh, Moses, uh, who was one that uh, was the, one of the, the great prophets along with uh, Abraham and, and uh, Moses as the lawgiver. Um, he's reminding us that Moses didn't give the law just in reference to giving them something to believe in. But again, pointing them to the Savior, the Messiah, uh, who, would, who would come. So what's your verdict? He made all the claims. Do you believe those? He provided the witnesses. They've been carefully chosen. 
Each one of them takes the stand and the evidence has been presented and the defense rests. And as a member of the jury, now you get to deliberate. You must weigh the evidence. It's a powerful, life-changing decision. What's your verdict? It's quite literally a verdict that is a matter of life and death. Your life and your death. I, uh, I noticed that there are five witnesses there. I want to be, be witness number six, all right? How about you? We could have put another line there where we could put our names that I'm a, I'm a witness to that. You see, my desire for you is to know Christ. I, I, I hope you love the Bible. I hope you love coming to church. But all those things are nothing but windows that you could see and come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you know him? Have you heard the radical things about who he is? He is amazing. He is our God that came from heaven to walk among us. He gave his life. We took communion together this morning because we are recognizing his body and his blood. Could I influence you anymore? I mean, some of you are in this room and you might want to just stand up and shout. I know, I know how you are. Some of y'all tell me that after we walk out. <laughs> but there might be somebody in here. Maybe that you got, you got a lot of stuff up here about it. I mean, maybe you've been listening to your grandma. You've been going to church. You've, or, or maybe you haven't gone to church very often. Maybe you haven't really surrendered yourself completely to this radical Jesus. It's your only choice. It's the only choice that makes any sense at all. Oh, I know. I, I know the society has got all this stuff they want us to know. They want us to think differently. But I'm telling you, you won't be five seconds. You won't be five seconds into eternity, and you'll know that it was right. That was it. It was just like the Bible proclaimed. So you don't have to believe me. Believe him. He made the claims. He called the witnesses. And he asked you, surrender. I am the life giver. Let him give you life today. I hope that you feel better physically. It'll come and go. But spiritually, heaven is waiting because of what he came to offer to us. Would you bow with me? Jesus, um, what, what, what a place in Scripture. You, you brought us right along on a street corner somewhere, maybe around the temple or wherever you were gathered, and you spoke words to these religious people that are absolutely life-changing and radical. Today, Lord, we get to decide. Many in this room have decided long ago. But I keep talking to them, Lord. Many others keep using our voices, our lives, to proclaim that there is no other name by which we might be saved than the name 
of Jesus. So with our hearts, we believe. And with our minds, our tongues, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that Jesus Christ has saved me. Thank you for teaching us so profoundly. Thank you for the radical claims. And thank you for your call to a radical response to Jesus. In your holy name, Lord, everyone said together, amen.